The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. And Merry Christmas once again. I trust that everyone had a, just a good day of celebration yesterday. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And during this time of uh, Advent, we've been uh, looking at uh, several passages in the book of Isaiah. And on this first Sunday after Advent, it seems fitting that we, we bring the season to a close with uh, one more look uh, into the book of Isaiah. So we're going to go ahead and um, look at Isaiah 49, chapters one through, uh, verses 1 through 7 today. So I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 49, 1 through 7. And let's read that. Let's give our careful attention to um, the, word, the, the Lord's word here, his perfect, his infallible word. <clears throat> Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O gracious and mighty God, we bow before you and you alone, creator of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. We bow before you because you are the faithful one. He who chose the servant to do something astounding. And Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of the servant. Lord, we ask that as we read about him and about his mission this morning, we ask, Lord, that you will drive your word deep within us. We ask, Lord, that you will give a greater picture of who you are and what you've done and what you call us to. 
Grow us in your grace. Strengthen our faith, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So uh, there's someone I like to read uh, a lot as I study. His name is Barry Webb. Uh, He's a professor in Australia. And when uh, this scholar had finished his, what I think is a very insightful little commentary on the book of Isaiah, he said this, he made this comment. He said, in studying Isaiah, I have soared into the heavens and seen the glory of God. And with new eyes, I have seen this world and my own place in it. The view has been breathtaking. And you know, that's, that's a comment that's been resonating with me um, even this morning. You see, this week uh, I had the opportunity to reread large portions of the book of Isaiah as I reflected on this passage. And like Dr. Webb, I've been struck with a fresh vision of the glory and faithfulness of Almighty God. And perhaps especially I've been struck by his utterly undeserved yet relentless pursuit of his people in the face of our repeated waywardness. And I've just been filled with gratitude to the Lord for his steadfast love. Well, this morning as we're looking at Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, which is the second of four so-called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And the other three are found in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, which Andrew preached on last week. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9 is the, is the third one. And then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. I encourage you to look at those. But these are songs that highlight the unique person and ministry of the servant of the Lord. And their place in the second half of Isaiah's book, which begins in chapter 40, is especially significant. You see, this second half of the book is referred to oftentimes as Isaiah's book of comfort. Because here we see the prophet shift his focus. He He shifts it away from a message highlighting God's coming judgment, which has dominated his message in the first 39 chapters, to one highlighting the perfect and everlasting consolation that God alone would provide for his people. And friends, it's a message that comes at just the right time in Isaiah's book. You see, in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, the prophet has just announced to King Hezekiah that the southern Israelites, like their faithless brothers and sisters in the north, they would be taken into captivity by Babylon because of their obstinate sinfulness and idolatry. And so, as Isaiah contemplates this coming exile, he seems to anticipate the questions such such exile would undoubtedly provoke from the people of God. And we can almost imagine him hearing them say, Exile? Really, Lord? Aren't we your chosen people? Will you not remain faithful to those whom you say you love? Lord, is Babylon too strong for you? Can the almighty God of the universe no longer rescue us? And so it's it's here, beginning in chapter 40, 
that Isaiah, imagining his brother's doubt and despondency at the thought of exile, he shifts his focus. And we hear him fully assured of the Lord's power and faithfulness. We hear him say to the Israelites those blessed words in verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Friends, this is an astonishing message. And as readers, it hits us, as I'm sure it hit the Israelites, like a breath of fresh air in the midst of suffocating smoke. And as Isaiah continues to unfold this message of comfort in the following chapters, we hear him foretell in chapters 44 and 45 of the good news that they were most longing to hear. We hear him prophesy that the Lord would bring his people out of Babylonian exile and restore them to the land of Canaan. And that he would use of all people the pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, to do it. And yet, as wonderful as this news of a return from exile would have been, friends, we cannot miss the fact that this return from exile served only as a sign of the Lord's faithfulness. You see, what the Lord ultimately planned to do was something far greater than merely to bring them home to the promised land. So what did he plan to do? Well, our passage this morning tells us that whatever he planned to do, it would be centered in the unique person and ministry of the servant of the Lord. And so as we turn our attention to Isaiah 49, in order for us to grasp what Isaiah has to say about this servant of the Lord, there's a question that we need to answer right off the bat. Friends, we need to know who the servant is. It's obvious by verse 3 that he's the one speaking, yes. But his identity, who he actually is, well, frankly, that's a bit of a mystery, at least at first. After all, in the second half of verse 1, he says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. And you might think this sounds strikingly similar to what the Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1.5, you remember what he said? He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He said that to Jeremiah. And so I think it's reasonable for us to ask, well, is the servant here another prophet? Like Jeremiah or perhaps even Isaiah, since this is his book. There are a few problems with this. You see, first of all, no prophet in the Old Testament ever uses the phrase, listen to me, as a summons for people to hear his personal instruction. In fact, Isaiah is the only prophet to use this phrase, listen to me, and each time he does, at least up to this point, he clearly uses it in referencing God saying, Listen to me. Secondly, in the second half of verse 3, we hear the Lord say that 
he will be glorified. Or as the ESV footnote puts it, he will display his beauty in the speaker. Did you catch that? And again, this is unique. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we hear God say that he will display his beauty in a mere prophet, let alone any person. And then finally, consider the name he's given in verse 3. He's called my servant, Israel. He's called Israel. What does this mean? Is the servant actually claiming to be the people of Israel? Not just an individual. Well, this actually isn't as radical an idea as you might at first think. After all, Isaiah has repeatedly identified the nation of Israel as the Lord's servant, particularly throughout the book of uh, Comfort. For example, in Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, we hear the Lord say, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. And yet, there are a couple of major problems with identifying the nation of Israel with the servant in our passage this morning. You see, first of all, the Lord himself distinguishes the servant from the nation of Israel in verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says that he formed him to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. And this is essentially repeated in verse 6. In other words, God has called this servant who he's named Israel. In order that he might bring the people of Israel back to himself. And this highlights the second major problem with identifying the people of Israel with the servant here. The people of Israel themselves need to be brought back to the Lord. They themselves need rescue. And you know, this actually makes a lot of sense. After all, throughout the book of Isaiah, they've proved themselves to be faithful, faithless servants. Just listen to what the Lord says about them in Isaiah 42, 18 and 19. He says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? And so, friends, the servant in our passage this morning is not a mere prophet, nor is he the Lord's people. Instead, he's a very unique individual with a very unique mission. He's one divinely appointed, chosen and named by God as Israel, so that he might perfectly embody the Lord's people who were called his servant. He's one in whom the beauty and glory of the Lord would be on full display. One specially called from the womb with a mouth like a sharp sword, as he says in verse 2. Perfectly prepared for an effective and far-reaching ministry of the word. Indeed, he's one who could demand a hearing, saying to the world, listen to me as if God himself were speaking. Friends, this is the portrait of a glorious person, isn't it? And what the New Testament makes abundantly clear is that this is a portrait 
of the servant of the Lord, who is in fact Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. Just listen to some of the ways these things are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. In John 13, 31, for example, Jesus says of himself, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In other words, God's beauty was displayed in Jesus. And in Revelation 1.16, the Apostle John says that from Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And in Matthew 17.5, we hear the Heavenly Father himself bearing similar testimony, saying in Jesus' transfiguration, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Friends, we need to hear what the prophet Isaiah is saying. Isaiah 49 is a message about God's plan to use his perfect servant, who is Jesus Christ, to do something astounding. Something far greater than merely to bring the exiled Israelites out of Babylonian bondage. So what was he planning to do? What was the unique mission God intended for this servant? Well, for us to answer that, I think we need to consider what Isaiah says just prior to this in chapter 48. You see, at the end of chapter 48, as we hear the prophet calling the Lord's people to leave Babylon because their exile is over, And as we hear him proclaim to them, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, in verse 20. We also hear him bring this chapter to a close with a terrifying reminder in verse 22. Notice what that verse says. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. What could this mean? He's just announced a return from exile. He's just proclaimed that the Lord has redeemed Israel. And we can almost imagine the Israelites saying, no peace. The Lord has finally brought us, his beloved, home. How can there be no peace? And why is he talking about the wicked? But friends, these seemingly incongruous words in the midst of such good news... These words are just what they needed to hear. And they're what you and I need to hear as well. You see, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And friends, that's the point being made at the end of chapter 48. The Israelites' hearts were, and our hearts are, desperately sick. And a mere change of scenery isn't going to change that. I think the Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer hits the nail on the head in his comments on this verse. Listen to what he says. He says, a change of scene does not bring a change of heart. Leaving Babylon, the people do not escape from their own character. To come home to Canaan is not to come back to God. Friends, how often, if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we, like the Israelites, think that all we need 
is a change of scenery and our troubles would vanish. How often do we think that all we need is perhaps a bit more money or this job or these friends or that person to go away and we'd finally have lasting peace. Brothers and sisters, to think this way is to misdiagnose the depth of our troubles and to pursue remedies that can only ever provide temporary and illusory relief. No, we need to let this verse sink deep down. We need to take to heart that the Lord with these words was reminding the Israelites and he's reminding you and me today that there's an issue deeper than the exile his people endured that all of us need remedied. And that is the sinfulness of the human heart, which is a far crueler and more powerful taskmaster than any ancient or modern one could ever be. But if that's the case, how then do we come back to God? How can the sinfulness of our hearts be remedied? Well, I think the answer is found, first of all, in recognizing that on our own, we can't, we won't come back to God. We can't heal our desperately sick hearts. Instead, what we need is to be rescued. And friends, our rescue was the mission of the servant of the Lord. The Lord himself makes this very clear at the end of verse 6, when he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, in our passage this morning, we're really only given a glimpse of how the servant would bring salvation. In verse 7, for example, we read that it would involve him being deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. And we see, too, from the same verse that he would somehow ultimately be exalted by God in the eyes of men for his service. But nevertheless, before his exaltation, he would be hated and rejected. But what would that look like? And how could his rejection and suffering help us? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this passage is only the second of four servant songs in Isaiah. And really, the shape of the world's hatred against the servant and exactly how his maltreatment would provide for our salvation, these things are really only made clear in Isaiah's fourth servant song, in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. And that's worth, that's worth us looking at. So I invite you to go ahead and turn there to Isaiah 53, and let's read that passage, verses 3 through 6. The prophet says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, did you hear all that? The servant would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He would be pierced and crushed for our transgressions and sins. His chastisement and wounds would bring us peace and healing and all of this because the Lord would lay our iniquity upon him. What an awful and yet glorious picture of the grace of God and the atoning work of the servant whose life was made a sacrifice so that we might live. Who, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is what it would take to heal the sinfulness of our hearts. This is the message that brings light for the nations. A message that we all so desperately need to hear. After all, apart from the grace of the Lord, we are all, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, darkened in our understanding. We're all excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of our hearts. Friends, we don't just need a change of scenery. We don't simply need the troubling circumstances of our lives fixed, whatever they are and however awful they might appear. Friends, what we need is to be rescued. What we need is the light of the servant of the Lord. You know, this reminds me of what Jesus himself said in John 12, 46. He said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friends, Jesus has given himself in order to heal the sinfulness of our hearts. He has come as light shining in the darkness so that we who are blind might see. And as we come to him, we experience the rescue which was the mission of the Lord's servant. And we're giving, given true and lasting peace. But not only that. Friends, when we come to the Lord in true humility, when we put our faith as sinners in him alone, the Lord then, in his amazing grace, he sends us out. Listen to how Jesus characterized the life of the disciple in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14 and 16. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And consider, too, the Apostle Paul and his exhortation to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, that they would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the world, word of life. Friends, isn't that amazing? And isn't it encouraging that we who were blind darkened in the sinfulness of our own hearts. The Lord gives us a role to play as bearers of his light to the nations so that he might ransom a people for God, as the Apostle John says in Revelation 5, from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
What an astounding mission for the servant of the Lord. And what a privilege for us to join in it with him. Friends, will you come to him? Will you come to Jesus, the light for the nations? He offers himself freely for you here today. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and mighty God, uh, we bow before you astounded, uh, for we were blind. Oh, Father, we could not see. Our hearts were hardened. They were desperately sick. And rather than turn us away, you and your infinite grace and steadfast love determined to save a people for yourself. You entered this world as a light for the nations. You gave yourself freely for us. You bore our sins as the perfect servant that we might have lasting peace with God. What an amazing, what an amazing thought. Well, Father, we stand and we stand and sit in awe before you. And we ask, Lord, that you will again send these words of Isaiah deeply home within us. Strengthen our faith, Lord, as we go out. And we pray all this in the mighty and precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.